Well, magnesium, the body's master mineral, of course, even digestion is influenced. Big problems, though, magnesium has been largely missing from the U.S. soil since the 1950s, which explains why up to 80% of people may be deficient. And most supplements contain only one to two forms of magnesium, when in reality, there are at least seven your body needs and benefits from. So I'm excited, as always, to tell you about the new magnesium product I've been talking about for some time, Magnesium Breakthrough. It is the ultimate magnesium supplement out there. I'm even more excited because it's finally back in stock. Magnesium Breakthrough has been selling faster than the company makes it. Bioptimizers has been able to keep up with. It's already sold out a few times due to supply shortages with everything going on in the world. It could very well be sold out again shortly. The Dr. Drew team was able to arrange for some stock to set aside just for our audience. I guarantee it's the best available on this product anywhere. Seriously, with volume discounts combined with our custom 10% code, Dr. Drew 10, you can save up to 40% off selected packages of Magnesium Breakthrough. It's an amazing value. And I promise this deal is only available on this specific website magbreakthrough.com slash drew you will not find the deal at amazon or even the company's own website the deal is exclusively for podcast listeners and it is for a limited time while supplies last they've also completely revamped their checkout process so it's much easier and friendlier magnesium breakthrough is the most effective magnesium supplement i've ever tried to say goodbye to having to buy seven different bottles of magnesium to get the complete supplement go to magbreakthrough.com slash drew use coupon code dr drew 10 to save up to 40 percent off select packages and to get the most full spectrum and effective magnesium product ever. Hey everybody, welcome to Dr. Podcast. Uh, keep supporting those people that allow us to keep bringing you these great pods. Uh, thank you so much uh, again for all the feedback. Don't forget the other podcast at drdrew.com and the stream. We're trying to do a regular stream there. Uh, you can check it out at drdrew.tv uh, and we uh, have a call-in show and some uh, interaction with the streaming uh, commentary on Facebook and YouTube and uh, Twitter. And it's kind of interesting. So check that out if you don't mind. My guest today is Dr. David Gasfriend. He, the website is dynamichealth.com. Dynam, dynamic, well, let me spell this out, D-Y-N-A-M-I, care, um, underscore, buddy, is that what it says? And, and Dynamic to, Care Health. There you go, Dynamic, dynamic care. care Health, one word, dot com. Very yeah, thanks. That is the healthcare. Uh, Dr. Gethry, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, girl. So th- this intrigued me, not just because it's it's an opportunity to talk about advancements in the treatment of addiction and but at a time like this, when we're having to deploy technologies, it seemed a particularly appropriate time to examine what's out there. Yeah, we were a little ahead of the curve, um, but it's because the treatment of alcohol, drugs, and even tobacco addiction is a little behind the curve. So um, we got into this because we have members of the family that suffer from addictions and have relapsed, and my oldest son said, you know, dad, why is it you're a specialist in this field? You've worked in it for 40 years, and yet we just don't have great treatments. And I said, oh, we have a treatment that would be the envy of anything in modern medicine, except nobody will use it. And he was shocked. And he said, why not? And I told him about financial incentives to motivate people to switch from instant gratification for drugs to instant gratification for healthy behaviors. And it's the best evidenced most effective and least utilized approach we have in the whole field of addiction treatment. And he said, well, why aren't people using it? And I told him all the obstacles. And he said, but don't your people realize that with technology, 
you can solve every one of those obstacles nowadays. Let's talk about how. So you can download an app from the Apple Store or the Android Store. And you can sign up your son or daughter or spouse, and they can get a call from a recovery coach, a certified peer specialist who's lived this experience of recovery. And they can walk you through doing appointment reminders on your phone so you don't miss your evaluation, your intake, your your sessions, your AA meetings, NA meetings. We then can remind you two hours before those sessions that it's time to get ready to go there because people in early recovery, they're, they're disorganized. Their schedule is off. Their sleep-wake cycle is, is messed up. And with COVID, we don't, people don't even know what day it is, the way right. COVID has social distanced us from the office or from work. So they get a reminder through the app right on their phone. And it even has the Google Maps directions for how do you get to that AA meeting or NA meeting. And then we track with the GPS and the phone when it's time for you to be there, did you arrive at the location on time and did you stay for the duration of the session? And we have caught people whose counselor thinks they're doing great, seven meetings in seven days. You know, they're really in recovery. And we've caught people who leave after the first five minutes every single day in a week because they're just getting their signature card initialed by the meeting secretary. Mm -hmm. And they're showing it to their counselor and the counselor doesn't know the difference. And we alert the counselor that this person is at risk now. And they bring the patient in and they do an intervention. And the person breaks down in tears and says, I know I'm screwing up, but you know, these meetings are so boring or I feel like I'm getting cravings. And now they can change the treatment plan and avert a relapse before it needs to happen. In other words, address the cravings and, and talk to the patient about whatever it is that's uh, not going right in the recovery. Yeah. Get them in between the session this week and the session next week when they're actually at risk. So I want to drill back down on what you were saying about the lack of financial incentive. Are, are you talking about getting people to the free services of mutual aid societies that the medical system seems to, if anything, undermine that rather than support that? Well, that used to be the only way or NIH grants. So the NIH funded 50 years of research on this approach. And they definitively showed in a hundred research papers in the peer reviewed literature that the brain reward system responds to small financial incentives to healthy behaviors. But the problem is nobody would pay for that. So when the grants ran out, the treatment program stopped using it. We've actually broken that sound barrier because we have been successful with this, this app and the counseling, we've been able to get insurance companies to pay not just for the app, not just for the testing, we do drug testing as well, but they're actually starting to pay for the incentives because it's doubling to tripling the abstinence rates. It's a dramatic effect. I've, I've seen people be critical of uh, reward setups where addicts are paid for participation treatment, and I'm shocked that it's whatever it takes. And this is an evidence-based practice. It's not a lot of money. It's just using the reward system in a very specific way. Why would people have ethical problems with saving people's lives by using brain endogenous systems? 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so you're an expert in this area. You know this stuff. We're not paying anybody's rent. We're paying them, you know, a dollar to read a cognitive behavioral therapy module through their phone and do exercises and comprehension questions. You know, they're spending five minutes, but they're doing it Saturday night, midnight, when they're lonely and they have nobody in their life and they're going to be craving. And they read the, the topic on loneliness and the patients tell us that they start getting tears in their eyes because they realize somebody understands what they're going through and they become connected with their emotions, which is something that's hard for addicts to do. And that begins the healing process. So, you know, the general public doesn't understand why these addictions are different from regular illnesses. But you have to understand, normally you break your leg, you feel pain. Well, the first thing you want is for the surgeon to get in there and fix it. You don't care if they got to cut through your skin and, you know, you got to take medicines, you got to go for visits, please, you know, make me better. The person with addiction, their reward center is telling their thinking brain, the cortex, you need to get more of this drug to survive, to feel numb, to avoid your trauma, whatever the reason underlying this is, or just the habit um, to avoid withdrawal. And so you're not acting based on your volition, your common sense. You're actually being driven by a deeper region of the brain, the reward center, which is underneath that big gray matter cortex that makes us human beings. When we have a functioning reward center that responds to normal rewards, like getting paid, getting a promotion, getting a relationship, our cortex learns, it thinks, it executes executive decision-making that allows us to get better and stay healthy. But when the drug of abuse is triggering the reward in the brain, the science is very clear. You're not thinking with a straight head. And that's where these small and persistent rewards make a big difference. Yeah, the the, we, the common term we use is stinking thinking. And, and I, I find it a immense area of frustration when people will literally say things like, do you mean your patients don't have agency? No, no, they have agency, but they are under the sway of a system, a deep system that is outside of their conscious, even awareness, that is coloring everything else. And I, w- I was explaining this just yesterday to a, rec- a patient who had a long-term recovery under her belt, and she kept saying, this time it's more difficult. And I said, yeah, it is, because your disease is taking advantage of your recovery. Even the good yes. thing, it pulls in to make sure it gets you to use. That's what that yeah. part of your brain is getting you to do. Uh, just think about yeah, that. Yeah, that's a classic. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a classic experience. I, you know, I taught at Harvard Medical School for 25 years, and I taught my residents and medical students to think of the first time you fell head over heels in love, maybe with the wrong person, maybe too soon, maybe you were too young. Maybe that person didn't have those feelings for you, but you were crazy. You weren't thinking logically. You weren't listening to your parents who said, you know, she's just not the right person for you. You're going to break your heart on this. You went headstrong into it and you did break your heart. People can relate to that because almost all of us have gone through something like it. That's what addiction is, but about 10 times worse. Right. And it's all the time. Or all right, sometimes we'll use hunger. Like if you imagine trying to focus on anything, if you were haven't eaten for a week, good luck. Uh, you all you're gonna be thinking about is getting food. And and this yeah. again is it's almost like hunger and love object or intense love connection 
are tied together in this appetite of reward, wanting and liking. Even when they don't like it anymore, they still want it. Yeah, by the way, it's not just confusing for people, you know, lay people who don't understand addiction. It's also a bit confusing for people in recovery who've gotten through, you know, the AA or 12-step program, and they wonder, well, but is it going to work with AA? Is it going to work with NA? And the good news is that we've looked at that, and it works beautifully with it. Because all it's doing is stabilizing a deeper brain region so that you can use the benefit of the fellowship of AA. The, the social contacts, the acceptance, um, the it even works with one of the important things that AA and its type of programs do, which is to help people overcome the shame and the guilt and the, the feeling that there's something morally wrong with me, which is not the case. The research shows very clearly the, um, the range of people who come down with addictions is entirely across society. You have good people and you have bad people. You have people who have everything going for them and you have poor people who have nothing. Um, anybody's physiology can become addicted. And the opioid epidemic has proven that to most of us because you get these drugs in your system, the withdrawal transforms your thinking and you start thinking about the drug more than you think about life. So we've been able to find that you add these motivational incentives. Now, it's really just a foundation. It's not recovery. It's not treatment. It's just setting the stage for someone to now be motivated to want treatment, to want recovery, to want the 12-step AA fellowship. And then you have to guide that as well. So we do the drug testing and we do it remotely, which is another COVID uh, era benefit that we already had established. And we do valid, rigorous, truly random, truly witnessed drug testing. And we reward for initiating the effort to become abstinent. But then we have somebody who's motivated to want the help to be abstinent. So they want to ask their counselor or their coach, how do I do this? I want to get those rewards. I don't know how to, I don't know how to take care of myself. I don't know why I get these thoughts. How do I block them? How do I protect myself from you know, the people who want to sell me drugs now that I'm home, I'm not working, there's nothing going on, I'm bored all day long. And so it turns out this is extremely valuable during the COVID era. Hmm. So uh, are you doing a buckle swab or something, a mouth swab? Yeah, so we ship our members and we call them members because they're doing this on their own accord. They're not mandated to this. They're not patients coming to us strictly through a medical system. And our members, we ship them a palm-sized um, saliva drug test kit or a palm-sized breathalyzer for alcohol or even a palm-sized smokerizer for smoking. And they carry these with them wherever they go. They're a tra traveling salesman driving on the highway, and they get a text alert in the next hour, please do a drug test. So they'll pull over at the next rest stop. And they'll put their cell phone right on their dashboard of their car and they'll put the, the app up and the app will be uh, set up to the video selfie camera of their smartphone. And it'll give them instructions as they do this. And they'll put the swab in their mouth, collect their saliva, put the swab in the little cup. They show the cup to the camera and we watch. We have human beings and customer service that watch 
the test cup display that it's a valid test and which of the different categories of substances are abstinent or clean and which, if any, are positive, that is dirty. So we're able to see for sure, is somebody off their opioids? And separately, we can see, are they on their medication? If it's buprenorphine or suboxone, we can see separately that they are taking that, but they're not using the opioids substances. What do you, what do you test for in that profile? In addition to opioids, uh, buprenorphine, methadone separately, we test for benzodiazepines, marijuana, cannabis, um, the uh, amphetamines, stimulants. So there's uh, a bunch of different substances we can test for. Oh, uh, but it's, benzos and amphetamines are difficult to, there's a lot of false positive with both those, right? Well, actually, if you use the latest um, immunoassays, they're actually very specific. So we get good results on these. Right. And we can, if somebody wants to appeal, our customer service actually can send off a sample or send them to a lab to get a urine test to do a confirmation. Um, so we, we work with our members because our goal is really to help them demonstrate that they're succeeding. So it's, it's, it's not a punitive approach. It's a reinforcing approach. And do they, do they have contact with a, a treating professional along the way here? Well, it's really interesting. Um, we have rehabs that are introducing this a couple weeks before the discharge. We have day treatment programs and outpatient programs that are using it in concert with their counseling. But we've had major US insurance companies start to fund this. And they find that the dropout rate from addiction treatment programs can sometimes be very high. So they've said, could we have our own insurance company care managers, our own employees, directly refer to you, even if someone is in treatment? And we've said yes. And we've hired recovery coaches because we don't want a pure technology interaction. We want a human interaction. And these peer recovery coaches are certified, they're clinically supervised, and they meet face-to-face -face through like a FaceTime um, you know, video interaction once a week, and then unlimited texting back and forth during business hours. So there's a lot of interaction to support all the technology activities. How many uh, patients are under your, in this program? We have already uh, run about 800 people through the program, over 800. Um, we have grown in the last nine months from seven treatment systems across the country to now 25. We've got four or five major U.S. insurance companies now doing projects with us. And we have two state Medicaid systems that are now working to develop their own launches of this. So in three and a half years, we've gone from the concept to a full production um, you know, system. Are you, I, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the kinds of patients that are out there these days. Have you noticed uh, that sort of millennial and younger are sort of resistant to mutual aid and sort of a little different than what we're accustomed to managing in the old days, at least? Yeah, there, there are those differences. That's, that's really true. Um, and, and one of the beauties 
of a technology approach is that the younger people are really into it. They're kind of shocked that it exists, that somebody thought of them. So when we introduce this in a collegiate recovery model at one of the nice liberal arts colleges in the Northeast, which I can't say which one, um, the uptake was very rapid because to them, this seemed like totally logical. But you know, we've also had to work with some older and even senior uh, members. And, and that's a different story. Um, they're not as comfortable with the tech. Um, in, in Boston's venerable um, uh, Gavin Foundation, um, which the mayor of Boston, Mayor Marty Walsh, has gone through and succeeded, became mayor of the city, is on the board there, very public about his recovery. His uh, fellow um, graduates of that program include people in their 60s, people who've gotten out of prison for, after decades who have two ankle bracelets on their mm. feet. And they're told they have to use our system. So they sign up and our coaches have to walk them through it. And it takes a little bit of you know discussion. We see them on the video, we hear them, and we coach them until they're comfortable with it. But when we do that, even the older folks, um, even, you know, we have suburban people across Cape Cod, but we have inner city people in Cincinnati, Medicaid um, patients. And so we've tuned the approach and the tech to be very intuitive and, and very feasible for people of all ages. Well, it's one of the reasons I was interested in talking to you. We've been for a long time scratching our heads with it. We had an intuitive sense that this, the younger group would respond to technology. It's like, it's, that's much more there. It's, they're so accustomed to it. It's just what they live in. And uh, so I'm glad to hear that they're responding to it because getting the, the key d deficit we have found in millennials, let's just use that for the general term to cover, let's say 18 to 30, uh, is they, they literally getting them motivated to do anything has really been difficult. They, they, the, the, the classic interaction is us saying, do you want to be in your parents' basement smoking pot for the rest of your life? And, and the response is, uh, we'll say like, what do you want to do? And they go, I don't know. What do you want me to do? Uh-oh. Yeah, we, uh -oh. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, the heroin addicts of, of, of long gone of the, you know, the, the 20 years ago would be like, I don't know. I want to go do something. I want to be active. I want to have a life. I want to be political. I want to form a band. They had all kinds of ideas. This is an empty set with no. motivation of these younger ones. Yeah. And it's even worse now because now it's easy to say, well, why should I try? Yeah. You know, everything's shut down. The economy yeah. is a disaster. You know, um, leave me alone. Um, you know, we had a woman who was an employee of, um, and I'm allowed to say this by their agreement and hers, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, which insures people across New England. And they took us on for their employees. Uh, so this is a health insurance company that bought this for their own staff. And this woman was a, uh, an employee of the company. She has three sons. One has already died. Mm. She's buried a child from the opioid epidemic. A second is estranged. She doesn't have any contact with them. And the third was living in her home, but actively using drugs, mm. opioids. She couldn't go to evening support groups, uh, Al-Anon, after work because she felt she had to rush home in case she had to use naltrexone. the naloxone rescue kit yeah. to save his life. This is how frightened this woman was yeah, on a yeah. daily basis. Yeah, yeah. And her son got on Suboxone, and she still found that he wasn't stable. Yeah. 
Yeah. So through her employer, she was able to get on Dynamicare for her son. Now, she couldn't even talk to her son about it, but Dynamicare had our recovery coach call her son. And because he has gone through it himself, the, the recovery coach, he was able to engage the son, get him started, ship him the testing equipment, ship him the debit card that we use, which is an interesting story. Um, I'll yeah, save that for later. Cool. How did you do that? So we'll tell that story. Yeah. In a minute. yeah. I, I've yeah, heard of but, that piece being important. So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. That's another innovation of technology. Yeah. So her son agreed to start. Now, she didn't know how he was using it or if he was using it. His door was locked to her. He'd come out for meals. And so she didn't know what was going on. And then one day he tells her he's taking her out to dinner. Hmm. And she says, what, what do you mean you're taking me out to dinner? He said, I've saved up enough money with dynamic care. And with that, and, and I'm not worried about spending it now because I've just gotten a job. She said, mm -hmm. you went looking for a job? He said, yeah, my coach had me going out while you were at work, starting to look for a job. And I've got one. And I feel like I can spend the money I've saved up on my debit card. And I want to take you out for dinner. And she was astonished. I mean, she was practically in tears when she told me about this. And it's because we started with very tiny increments. You know, if you sign up for this, you'll get $20. If you do the first drug test and the first two weeks of drug tests, you don't have to be abstinent. Just do the test. Just see what happens. You'll get $5 the first test. $6 once you start becoming abstinent, seven the next time, eight the next time, you'll work up to 20 bucks. So this is a system that gets people started where they're at, engages them without a lot of demands or expectations. Now, it's a little controversial to some people. It's called harm reduction. Your goal is first start with harm reduction. Work up to abstinence when somebody's ready for that. And our algorithm allows that flexibility. So we observe the progress every few days with another drug test. We look at the appointments somebody's attending and are they on time and staying for the duration? Are they doing their cognitive behavioral therapy? And we increase the rewards and that worked for this woman's son. Let's go, go back to the harm avoidance for a second. I've always, you know, I sort of elected, I, I've never said harm avoidance is, you know, probably. I understand what harm avoidance it has a place, but I always said, eh, I'll work in abstinence only, but I ended up getting my X certification so I can prescribe Suboxone. And, but during the training for that, and this Thank is, you. And, and I, you know, I, I particularly in these days, my God, we have no option, but to start with harm avoidance. I mean, there's just such a massive problem. We have to start somewhere and it, and it's, and the fatality rate, I, I, it's just ridiculous. Everything's ridiculous. So we have to, it's like, it's like we're ambulance drivers. Now we got to save lives first. Uh, yeah. but, but to, to that point about harm reduction during my training for the X certification, am I using that term, right? It's called X certified or something now. It's, yeah. You're, yeah. you're wavered to prescribe buprenorphine, which exactly. only, you know, maybe certain tens of thousands of doctors, we need yeah. all doctors yes. to be able to treat this problem. Yeah. Yes, we do. But they brought up naltrexone and it's various, um, you know, implantable, injectable, whatnot. And they, they, they're. You know, and I'm a, let me just show you my hand before I say, make the, the tell you the stories. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of naltrexone. I've used it a lot. I've used it to good effect. 
And the lecturer and the little team that was presenting the stuff to us said, well, naltrexone, yeah, good. And at first I thought, oh my God, great. They're using this as part of the harm avoidance strategy and it should be in the lineup, you know, for skilled people to use. And he went, no, but we don't recommend it for anybody because we lost uh, too many patients to follow up. And I thought, wait a minute, you were not able to contain and keep your patients in follow up. So you're blaming the medicine. And, And I know they're tougher patients when they're not on their opiates. I, I know they're tough, I, but I know how to do that. And I'm imagining with your guys' ability to monitor and stuff, something like naltrexone should be an option for the right case. Am I am I correct? Yeah, yeah I, I think that's exactly right. And that's what the science shows. So the NIH did a big multi-site head-to-head study of buprenorphine or suboxone is the most common generic and, uh, and Vivitrol, the injectable month-long naltrexone. And um, Dr. Drew, I worked on that product for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I was the vice president of the company that developed it, helped get it through the FDA and um, get it into um, you know, widespread use. And what they found was when somebody gets on to each of these medicines, they have about equal success over the long-term. Both of them work they work differently, but they work at the center of the brain where it really matters. And they both work to stabilize the addiction. Um, now, for Vivitrol or naltrexone, you have to be detoxed first. So some people don't want to go through that, but other people do. Or other people have been on buprenorphine. They want to come off it, but they know they're going to be feeling withdrawal and craving, and they want to get onto uh, the Vivitrol, naltrexone to stabilize them for a few months at that point. So it's really something that should be part of every provider's toolkit. You know, you wouldn't treat cancer with just one chemotherapy. That would be crazy. It's crazy. And it's, I know what they're doing is the patients are better patients on buprenorphine than they are not. They're more difficult about tracks. And that's our job is to deal with the, deal with those difficulties, not to avoid it. So I, I always immediately yeah. get upset by that. Like it should be part of the deal. But we, we did a study with buprenorphine, with Suboxone in inner city Cincinnati. Um, this was funded by the governor of Ohio at that time, Governor John Kasich, who ran for president. And um, they funded us to provide this to buprenorphine patients who should have good outcomes anyway. And what happened in that comparative, comparative study is that the people who also got our incentives, Mm. they actually had twice the rate of abstinence from opioids as the people who only got the buprenorphine in counseling. Right. So even with a good drug like buprenorphine, it's not perfect. People are still able to get high and use uh, opioids on top of it. And that means they can get into trouble. So when you add the incentives, the CBT, um, these things enhance the efficacy and the persistence on the medications for addiction treatment. And so that actually led to us getting a million dollar grand prize from the governor for our success there. Let's do a little more on Vivitrol because uh, I I, I feel like it's not used enough. And and I've seen some miracles with stimulants and occasionally, and I've seen some really interesting results with alcohol uh, people and I don't yet know how to a priori figure out who the cases are that are going to respond. I end up just getting to it as part of my struggle to help them with their sobriety. But there are definitely, let's just use alcohol because it's the more vivid example. People that just sometimes 
can't stay sober, can't stay sober, and I'll be damned if naltrexone doesn't make it possible. Uh, is there a way to identify those people ahead of time? Yeah, so if somebody is really aware of their illness, accepting that they need to change, willing to stop drinking, what the studies found with Vivitrol is that in alcohol dependence, it will substantially and significantly increase the likelihood of staying sober for the long term. So we're talking six months to a year or longer. But I, now, I would, but I would say embedded within that, I'm aware of those studies and they were pretty impressive, but embedded within it are, are hyper responders. Like, like people that just, that really struggle with, and are deeply engaged in the program, can't stay sober and then hyper respond to the naltrexone. It is, can, can we pull them out of it? We identify them in some way? Not yet. People mm -hmm. have looked for a genetic test for that. Um, colleagues of mine at university of Pennsylvania, um, did really good work to try and demonstrate that and even get it through the FDA. It just wasn't reliable enough. It wasn't You've really seen that fully. Though, right? You've seen these cases. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's yeah. Weird. And that's why, that's why what you're doing, you know, that's the art of medicine. You know, a real doctor works with the patient, tries different things, doesn't give up, um, utilizes all of the available tools, um, you know, step by step until we really understand this particular patient's needs. And, and that's, by the way, how we designed the dynamic care model. We have a lot of different tools and technologies built in, and we use them not only individualized for each patient, but our members change over time. Early recovery is different from mid-stage recovery and is different from sustained recovery. Oh, yeah. And we actually change the protocol um, according to the performance of our members' um, behavior over time. And, and that's what modern medicine and the art of medicine really needs to be. So I want to harken uh, back to two other things you said. One, um, I'm dying to know what liberal arts college in Massachusetts was here because I went to one of those and I'm curious if, if it's the one I went to, in which case I can help support the youth, the deployment of this thing there. Um, is it in Massachusetts or is it just New England generally? I'm not going to say. You can't even tell me if it's in but Massachusetts. I'm, it does narrow it down to about four say. if you're in Massachusetts. I'm not going to say, but what I will say is that um, if you want to introduce us to the college um, counseling service, we will be glad to share our data and our experience um, because this is something that can really help kids. And by the way, even though they're not on the campus now, when they're at home, they're still at the same risk, if not more. So, you know, the families, a family gives their kid money. They don't know if they're enabling the kid to buy drugs with it, or they're policing the kid and stressing the relationship and provoking the risk of relapse, even through that. So what we do is we say, well, the family, and by the way, you know who told me that we needed to do this? This was not my idea. One of our founding investors is Congress, former Congressman Patrick Kennedy, who's in recovery himself well, I know and is a, a wonderful advocate. Yeah. Yes. Um, and Patrick said, David, you've got to offer this direct to the families. The parents are giving their kids money. They want to be able to protect them, and they don't know how to do it. So." The college students who aren't even on campus now 
are continuing, if not anything, to be at more risk. Their life is less structured. They have less social interaction to comfort them. So yeah, so we're able to offer that to families with their college kids at home, as well as to help the, the school counseling program set up for this for when the students come back, hopefully in the fall. And back to naltrexone and opiates, is the Vivitrol an adequate uh, naltrexone kind of therapy or do they have to have an implant? They have to take a pill every day. What, what's the sort of optimum way to use naltrexone with opiate addiction? Yeah, unfortunately, the once a day pill version of naltrexone has not been successful in the comparative studies. It's just too hard to remember to take a pill every day when your brain's reward center is saying, don't take the pill, don't take the pill. Right, right. And that, and you're not even consciously aware that that right. message is going out to your brain cells. Right. So that's why the NIH asked the pharmaceutical industry, please develop a month-long, long-acting version of naltrexone, and that's what Alchemies did, and that is effective. And, and is there now any again? It's it's not it's not the whole treatment. You want to have counseling, and you want to use AA in, in addition but it's the foundation for success with those things. Speaking of uh, AA, I, I'm so mortified that John Kelly's Cochrane analysis finally came out literally as the COVID epidemic <laughs> unfolded. I just got lost in that. I've been waiting for three years for that study. And we're gonna have to wait till after this is all over to, to champion it. Yeah, um, yeah, John, John Kelly's Recovery Research Institute has done wonderful work explaining what this science really means. And, and they do it for um, practitioners, providers, and, and for families and patients. And they do it separately because different people need different, you know, levels of detail. But um, yeah, they're doing a wonderful job. But, but it's his stuff is back to one of your opening comments, which is that there are free resources out there. They're free. Uh, and they're, yes. they're and they are evidence based, and they work, and they need a they need help around the perimeter for sure, um, but they've been undermined in, in recent years. And and is it really just because they're free that our profession doesn't doesn't sign up for it, or is it just our lack of understanding of how it works? It's a lack of understanding. Um, I learned about AA by going to AA meetings. And I was a, a trainee in psychiatry in my residency at Massachusetts General Hospital. And I went to meetings and sat and learned. And what I learned was they're using the same concepts, the same approach that high quality psychotherapy uses. Yeah. They're just using a different language and they're doing it in the context of peers. Now, is that threatening to some providers? Maybe, but it's not a legitimate threat it's an enhancement, it's an extension. So that's why when we developed Dynamic Care, we did it to support the professional treatment model. We did it to also support the recovery programs. We're talking with smart recovery, which is different from AA, yeah. but it's also for many people, it's the thing that's really comfortable and acceptable to them. Sure. And it can be very impactful. Um, and we're working with the insurance companies for people who aren't even in treatment and maybe can't get to treatment. I had a call recently, could we do this on Native American reservations? Mm. Where they don't have, they don't have mental health professionals, much less addiction, you know, treatment programs. And we've used dynamic care 
in very remote locations. Northern Vermont, where a mountain pass gets snowed in in the winter and they lose cellular and Wi-Fi connection, can't drive anywhere, can't get to a medical center or a counseling program, even before COVID. Mm -hmm. And so we set up the technology to make sure that we could still operate under those circumstances. Yeah, North Dakota so access is is big. You got to offer everything. Yeah, yeah. I, I may hook you up with the governor of North Dakota because they they've been trying to figure out how to help the Indian nations there, and they have a big alcohol and substance uh, drug, and this might yeah. might be something of interest to them. I, I'll at least hook you up with the first lady of North Dakota. She herself a recovering person. Is they're always trying to come up with novel and interesting ways to to approach this. Um, you know, I, the other thing about uh, smart recovery you mentioned, uh, you know, John Kelly is always very careful to use the word mutual aid society. So we're not like biasing one over another. It's just we know right. ones work and then whatever one fits for you, good. Do it. The ones that work is the one that, that will work. Um, back, I want to get back to something at the beginning. Uh, you asked about this, the debit card? Yes, that's exactly where I wanted to go, the debit card. Because I felt like I've seen, I don't remember where I read this. Somehow early on in the monetary reinforcement literature, I remember seeing that debit cards work better. Uh, yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah. So the researchers found that money is a more efficient reinforcer than anything else like gift cards. Just because you can use it anywhere, you can use it, you know, anytime. And um, so then the question is, wait, you're giving cash to people who are going to go buy drugs? Is that ethical? And what we did was we identified a debit card that is a smart card system. Now, it looks like a regular Visa debit card. It's not identifying. Nobody would know that you have a problem with substance use disorder by looking at the card. But you can use it almost anywhere, but not quite. So, for instance, you can't use it at a bar, a liquor store, an escort service, a casino, all the things that provoke risk for relapse. You can't spend more than the daily spending limit you agree to with your coach. You can't use it after retail store hours close. You can't convert credit to cash at an ATM or a gas station. So we have a whole bunch of protections built in. It's not perfect, but it's really, really good. So somebody who gets this horrible craving and they want to go 2 a.m. to some ATM in a dangerous neighborhood with a lot of drug deals and spend $250 on drugs, suddenly they are blocked. And we get the alert that they're in trouble. So we can get somebody to do an intervention before the relapse has started. And that is a beautiful thing. And it's a technology that I didn't even know existed, but you know, you put that together with the other stuff that we've been able to integrate. And you now have, in, instead of a rickety bridge across a giant chasm where the steps are so far apart, many, many people fall through, we now have a safety net, like a trapeze artist who's flying through the air. And if they fall, we can catch them before they get hurt. And, and that was the idea behind this product. Yeah, I, I've been aware of these debit cards for a long time. I've forgotten that that was the advantage to them. But I, I think I interviewed even somebody, Gary, on this show years ago who, who created these things or was advocating for them. I, I can't really remember who it was, but uh, uh, that's the reason they, they work so well. Cravings. You brought up cravings. That was the other thing I wanted to talk about. And, and I, I feel like this is going to be a controversial statement, uh, but I'm going to frame it in a way that it won't be too 
nutty, um, which is I, I feel like our profession has gotten too hung up on cravings. Uh, and every craving, you know, everything's about is he having cravings? What's the craving scale? Blah, 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 blah. I, I have always found that the more difficult patients were the ones that had it all together and didn't have cravings. That's somebody who wouldn't do their work, who would be relapsing in two weeks. While somebody with cravings, I could look at them and go, yeah, that's this disease. It's awful. Let it remind you to go check in with your sponsor, whatever, check in with your sponsor, check in with your coach, uh, get on the, de- you know, whatever it is that they need to do, let that motivate you. And if it becomes so overwhelming that you aren't going to be able to make it, let me know. But but we seem to be uh, just focused on people having no cravings. And I think that's a huge, huge mistake. What do you think? Yeah. So craving really got legitimized when the DSM-5, the American Psychiatric Association's Bible of diagnosis, included craving as a criterion for diagnosing substance use disorder. Well, that was fine. That was scientifically valid. The problem is a lot of people don't really perceive their cravings. They respond to cravings. How do we know that? We can brain image their blood flow in their reward center and see that even a fleeting picture of their favorite drug stimulates the brain to activate. And you can flash that picture faster than their conscious brain can detect it. So they don't know they saw that. Now, what's an analogy to that in in real life? If you're driving along the highway at 60 miles per hour and in your peripheral vision, you see a billboard advertising a casino on the way to Atlantic City, you get a craving to want to go to that casino and get high, and you don't even remember that you saw that billboard. That's how quickly the brain responds and produces craving. And so if you if you treat people based on the notion that, well, craving will be you know my clue, my key, you, you may totally miss that vulnerability. Well, but but I the, but the see you're broadening out the what I think um, most clinicians use as craving as uh, a sort of a hunger when you're creating, which I I agree your construct, which you're pouring into it, disturbed thinking, because yeah. because because that's the that's the real when they don't feel the craving, but they get the thought to go visit Julie. Who's Julie? Well, I used to buy heroin from her, but I, I don't know. She's my friend. I just had a, I just needed to go see her. They don't they don't have the the hunger part. They don't have the I want to use part. They just have the disturbed thought. So and most yeah. doctors don't put that into the craving category. No, they don't. That distorted thinking, it's much harder to tease out. Yep. It's one of the things that cognitive behavior therapy is very good at teasing out. But that's a rigorous protocol. And, and that's why we use that in um, firm, clearly laid out by expert psychologists in, in text material with exercises to get the patient to think these things through step by step. But when we combine that with rewards, and this is what the research has shown over and over again, that's when you get your best outcomes. Because now you're stabilizing the motivational system, you're exercising the cognitive system to think through these little details step by step that put people at risk. And then they realize, oh, I, I have really distorted thinking about this stuff. Now, in AA, this, this is referred to, as you said before, stinking thinking. Yeah. But people take their thought processes for granted. And cognitive psychologists have really figured out that now there's logical connections that take you off in the wrong direction. Right. And those have to be addressed. 
motivated reasoning, uh, motivated to use, even when they don't feel the motivation to use it, the brain is there yeah. with that priority. That's always a, a, a set point that, that they aren't aware is operating. Well, listen, this has been a very interesting conversation. Give, give us more of the specifics and how people get involved if they want to look for this service. Yeah. So individuals and families can go to dynamiccarehealth.com. Dynamic, A-R-E, dynamic care, health, no space, one word, dot com. And when they go to dynamiccarehealth.com, they'll see exactly what we offer. They can actually sign up themselves or their loved one. Uh, a treatment program can actually sign up with us and offer this to their patients. Um, even if they don't have the funding to provide it for free, they can offer it to their patients whose families do want to provide it. And then we will work with them. You'll see actually our research is there. So we have three completed clinical trials, one in alcohol treatment, one in opioid treatment, and one in smoking cessation. And you'll see the results. The results are we double to triple the rate of abstinence compared to conventional treatment alone. And, um, and, and we will be very happy to talk on the phone. The phone number is on the website at dynamicarehealth.com. Um, you can talk to a certified recovery coach, no charge. We also offer daily um, peer recovery groups online, um, and they're free. And they're seven days a week, 365 days a year. Some are even for family members as opposed to for the individual with the addiction themselves. Like so therapy or an al meeting? So it's, it's in between. It's um, fellow family members who are struggling with their loved ones, but it's moderated by a certified family recovery coach. Got so it. we provide assistance. If there's a crisis, we take people offline and help them identify resources so that it's not just a support group. It's a little bit beyond that. In this you know, post-COVID era, telehealth is getting a, a giant leap forward. Do you imagine a time when, I, I would imagine that this would also be a means to deliver pharmacotherapy and CBT it, it just I mean, reliably? Is that something in the future for you guys? Well, we're delivering CBT now. So that's here. And it's working well. In a, in a study we did um, where on paper, the patients were losing the paper before they left the clinic. When we put it into the app and the same exact material, and we paid a dollar for going through the material and doing the exercises, the patients completed 66% of all of the topics that were offered. So that's successful now. And for medication, we're already enhancing the outcomes of medication and addiction treatment. And we now have researchers funded by the NIH that are, are using us to actually test out new medications and look at their efficacy. But they want to make sure the, the people in the studies actually take their medications. So they're actually using us as their research platform to assure a high rate of adherence to their medications. So and all of that is, is in the here and now. Before we wrap up, do you want to say anything about the Treatment Research Institute or is that sort of fold, folded into all this? Oh, Treatment Research Institute is now part of the Public Health um, Management Corporation of Philadelphia. Um, it's a wonderful system of preventive and treatment services across the Philadelphia region. And um, I've spent a number of years um, as a senior scientist there. Um, and um, 
they have actually done some seminal work, uh, including a meta-analysis of this whole field of motivational incentives. So um, yeah, thanks for giving me a chance to give them a shout out. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, all this stuff is just, uh, this is where this field needs to go, you know? And, and I, I, I think, you know, so much of what we need to help people is already amongst skilled physicians. If we get the right technology and the right systems and the right way to deliver, I, I feel like this may be a whole new outlook to this disease. I'm hoping. Yeah. That's our goal. Our goal is not to be, you know, we're a, a for-profit startup um, digital health company. A lot of these uh, digital companies, their goal is to be a billion dollar um, company. That's not our goal. Our our goal is to be a million person um, recovery assist. Um, it's Our goal is a public health goal. Um, I, I come from years of treatment. Um, as a provider, years of uh, research and public policy work. And uh, the people who have invested in this so far have been very mission-driven to try and let's get results like the rest of modern medicine. So that when society looks at people with addictions, they see people who are likely to get better. Um, Like we look at cancer now. When when I was a kid, you didn't talk about somebody who had cancer because it was was too upsetting. Nowadays, we didn't talk about that stuff. You didn't talk about depression back then. Nowadays, people get better from depression. Even politicians talk about their depression. Right. We should get there with addiction as well. And we can with these kinds of tools. Or just again, I, I have zillions of questions. Are you looking at the homeless population at all? Anything special going on there? Or is that a whole separate topic? Yeah. So we've worked with the inner city, um, you know, Medicaid, severely disenfranchised population and criminal justice reentry. Um, we would love to do uh, a project in the homeless. Um, we are starting to work with um, the city-based um, ACOs, accountable care organizations, for um, high-risk individuals. But yeah, the homeless are the highest risk. So I, I think we could have a tremendous impact, and we'd love to be able to move into that population. Well, I appreciate you spending time with us, and I appreciate the work you're doing. It is, uh, again, dynamiccarehealth.com. Dr. David Gasper, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Drew. Pleasure. We'll see you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Thank you.